I was in Cincinnati last night. I did an ALS thing. It was Lou Gehrig Day in Cincinnati. I haven't been in Cincinnati a long time. The Bengals are there. I guess Joe Burrow is there. Baseball team's okay. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati. The best town in O-I-O-H-I-O-U-S-A. At first they called it Cincy, but since Cincy is so natty, Girls are pretty, pretty in this pretty little city. The fellers are the feistiest I've seen. And when it comes to Baltics, the Reds and the Bengals Maltese. They knock the sums of Baltics on the green. I mean, truth hard is indefensible. The facts are common sense of Baltics told me that there's a big mafia thing history in my in cincinnati cincinnati and kansas city were rivals i don't know if that's true i just made that up tom <laughs> why does cincinnati have its own lou gehrig day it doesn't everyone has a lou gehrig day now you got to that was part of the movement that we did but on lou gehrig day the cincinnati reds game was postponed got you so they had to postpone it to yesterday and i was in louisville so i made the drive over and it was awesome it was really cool beautiful day to watch baseball and as my wife's cousin said to me, he's like, baseball's great to go to a baseball game because you don't actually have to watch the game. You can just chill. Unless you're Tom Havistro and you've got a scorecard and a pencil and you're taking copious notes because the scorekeeper might have gotten it wrong. Well, the scorekeeper did get it wrong last night, I mean, so that's why I keep um, uh, copious notes. They added four extra runs on the scoreboard, and I was like, mm, no, see, no, see, look at my little handbook here, no, see. Matt, they did not. They did not change my appeal. Uh, I got the score right, and they had it wrong. Matt, are you a, a scorebook guy at a baseball game guy? I used to be. I and then I became a glove guy, and then I just became a beer guy. The best. Wait. So, how old were you when you were a glove guy? This is like a big controversy. Whether adults should be able to bring gloves, or is it just the kids thing? I think it was a nostalgic college summer with my dad thing. And then when my boys got back from college, I might have mentioned it and they just thought it was straight up lame. And I think they kind of sunned on me into submission and I just left it at home. I don't even know where my glove is anymore. I don't do the glove thing. And some guy like tried to catch a foul ball with his bare hand to try to tough it out. Like, hey, I can just grab this with a bare hand. Didn't work out. Ricocheted off his hand. He didn't do the two hands thing. Didn't do the gloves thing. And then he winced in pain for a while. I mean, I feel like if you miss the ball, if it bounces off your hand, what's the play there? Do you pretend? Oh, you know, I wanted the kid to have it. I didn't really want it. Last second, I just realized I wanted to bounce to the kid nearby, even if your hand is like in flames from pain. Like, what's the move there? First of all, you got to kind of like this to smack the pain out of it. like, ah, oh, shucks. Oh. And you got to wince because, ooh, I wanted that ball to give to the kid. But really, it's masking the wince of you crying from the pain. I have never caught a baseball at a game. I've never tried to catch a baseball at a game. Whenever it starts coming, you know, when I've, I had a couple of times where it was in my general vicinity, I'll run away. I don't want anything to do with that. I want no parts, man. That thing is a bullet. Why am I going to stick my hand out for it? It just doesn't make any sense. I think if you're not on camera on the Jumbotron, you're not obliged to give it to the child. That's your object now. 
then everyone in the section hates you though. So what? Go to the next section. You're Paul George. Like everyone hates you, but you don't know why. And you're like, but I kind of want the ball. I kind of like, this is my thing. I feel like people in your section booing you to give the ball to a, a, a kid. I feel like that's, that's a lot of peer pressure to stand down for. See, I've caught the t-shirt, the free t-shirt toss many a time. And I always give it to a kid. And it's crazy because people are outstretched arms like a medieval painting of like Jesus walking among the people when he said, cast your nets and let there be fish or whatever, you know, like they're all just reaching out, trying to touch the hem of my garment. And I go, no. And I find a child and I hand it to the child. And then I always feel like a big man, like just look up and look around at everybody and say, bask before my glory. And then I walk back to my seat. I'm keeping it if it's good merch, bad merch, it's the kids. That, my friends, is Matt Sullivan. Yes, keeping the merch from the kids. We used to work together, Matt, at VR Mag. You're at Sol Duggery on Twitter. You just wrote a really, really awesome, insightful book called Can't Knock the Hustle Inside the Season of Protest, Pandemic, and Progress with the Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow. Matt, welcome to The Haber Show with me and Amin Al-Hassan from The Left Thanks for having me. And I believe I was an early advocate for not calling this show the Haberstro Show, which is just embarrassing. When you have such a good pun lined up for yourself, just go with it. So I'm glad that was a short-lived mistake on your part. So Matt, my theory is to always avoid the basketball pun because for some reason, basketball podcasts love to go for a basketball pun. The pick and roll, the uh, 24 second shot clock, the, you know, give and go, drive and kick, three man weave, <laughs> like, two man game, the no look <laughs> pass, which is a radio show that I actually do. And I'm like, stop <laughs> it, man. Or either that or come up with some really interesting one, like the eight second clock violate half court violation, <laughs> like really obscure rules. But Haber Show, I approve of that pun because it has nothing to do with basketball. I fumble it sometimes. That's how bad it is. Like, it's such a tongue twister. Like, I, I screw it up. So that's pretty embarrassing. Matt, you have written a book that I can't imagine all the different things that you had to encompass into this book because it seems like you went to go report on one story and then it spiraled into like 18 different monster stories. Like, why did you decide to write a book and in the middle of it, did you like panic? And you're like, wait, this is another book. Should I focus on this thing? This seems like another book. I think you and I, you know, studied a lot about player empowerment and off the court activism and really just fame and power and all these things that make us care about more than a game. So the book was already going to be about that from the moment of, you know, what Woj calls, quote unquote, the clean sweep when KD and Kyrie decided to come to Brooklyn I just kind of started jumping into it, embedding with the team, getting to know everyone around them, but really asking questions about player empowerment, what it's meant since Braun and activism and what it's meant through all these police killings over the years, which before I was a sports writer and a sports editor, I actually did serious news about stuff like that. So I think that's what guys on that roster last year trusted me with and why I was able to talk to so many people kind of beyond the game before the China thing hit, which was obviously political with, with Maury's tweet and the Lakers and the Nets stuck in China and not knowing what to do in the middle of an international imbroglio, basically. Imbroglio? Imbroglio? Imbroglio. Natalie Imbroglio. I remember her. Yeah. <laughs> Torn. Torn. Yeah. Lying naked on the floor. Yes. And then the Kobe stuff 
went down, which you can read about. I have an excerpt in, in New York Mag's Vulture right now. It was, you know, the book actually starts with Kobe, um, with Kyrie flying in Kobe's helicopter to meet him, to get advice. And Kobe's presence is really there throughout. Um, his final public appearance was at Barclays. And then Kobe passed, and it was a really difficult moment for Kyrie as kind of his star pupil, and he started to find himself even more beyond the game. And then who knew that my last game, after going to all these games, would be in front of 18,000 screaming, coughing, yelling people at Staples right after the Nets fired their coach, right? I'm like, okay, the Nets fired their coach. This will be the you know Kenny Atkinson doomsday scenario is kind of the end of this book, and KD comes back. But then I get a whole second half of my book that fit with what I was going into it with. You know, the Nets get more positive tests than ever, even though they were getting tests when no one could get them. KD and Tom Hanks kind of shook up the world and made him pay attention. Uh, you know, Kyrie <laughs> basically trying to burst the bubble while there's all these protests going on outside of Barclays Center, which kind of became the epicenter, if you will, of a lot of the protests in this country. And then into the bubble which half of the Nets didn't go to because they were either sick or protesting or somewhere they're in. And then these kind of bubble Nets being this ragtag group and then into, you know, another strike where people said Kyrie was right all along. So this whole journey also cross cuts back with the last decade, talking to people beyond the Nets and, and guys on the Nets now who, you know, DeAndre Jordan with Donald Sterling, Kyrie and LeBron with I Can't Breathe t-shirts back in the day. I mean, there's a lot of eerie um, lead up to this year that kind of coalesces around the pandemic and, and protests. So it was a trip, man. Two years of this thing. It's, it's great to finally have it come out. Um, and, and I hope it will be kind of a lasting chronicle rather than just for Nets fans and, and Nets haters. Matt, Kyrie and KD are two of the most mercurial guys that we have in the game of, among the stars. How did you win their trust over to get this kind of access? I think people tend to just stick with the NBA media X's and O's questions. I never asked KD a single question about basketball. I was over at his house with his housemates, his entourage, basically. Like, there's joints flying around the place. Everybody's, like, trying on a closet full of sneakers. I'm in there with his boy launching his own sneaker collection and KD comes in like eating some granola at one o'clock in the morning. He's showing me iPhone videos of his progress of his Achilles and Kyrie is hard to get to know, but I would ask him the difficult questions, the heady questions in the scrum where he would go on and on in his rambling, very interesting, thoughtful things that kind of went viral, whether that was about politics, about Kobe's influence on him. And then it all kind of, came together with us DMing links to political news over the course of this season. My last interaction with Kyrie was him sending me a 67-page Supreme Court ruling on indigenous land rights saying, keep the truth alive. He said to you, like the caption and the text was, keep the truth alive. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I know what that means. <laughs> I think. I get this question a lot because I covered the heat is people just want to know what LeBron is like. Like, what's he like in person, right? You always get that question. I mean, I'm sure you get that with a lot of the guys in Phoenix. So I pose this to you as the sports writer to sports writer. Like, what is Kyrie like as a person? Have you figured out Kyrie Irving after reporting out for this book? There's two Kyries with the media. I think there's the one where he puts on one affectation voice to just talk hoops with the beat writers. And then there's a the real Kyrie who is studied. He like goes home and reads history books. He 
is just the heady guy that we think he is, but he's evolved since the flat earther stuff where he was pushing buttons just to push them. I think now he's in a, you know, very full on meditation, sage burning, uh, out there book reading, but also father mode. He's a really good humanitarian, a good dude. And I think Kobe's passing had something to do with that. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, all that. And he bought a house for George Floyd. The other day, he just got word from some doctor in California that a kid who'd been shot in a gun violence incident in Cali told his doctor that Kyrie was his favorite player. And now Kyrie's buying this guy a house that's, you know, disability friendly mansion, basically. So I think he's a kind hearted spirit who knows where he came from and wants to leave more of a mark on this. I'm just not sure he's very good at articulating that all the time. And so he gets hated on because he's still willing to push those buttons, right? Like the, the subtle racism in Boston, he's totally right about that. His friends told me that he was worried about that all along. And then what do you know? Like the next two weeks, people were throwing bottles and stuff at players all around the league. The interesting thing about Kyrie is that there are things, many things that he says that are absolutely true and things that are worth talking about. And and I've I've said it myself last summer I was like he's making a good point I don't know if he can be the messenger because of his track record of the for lack of a better way of phrasing it garden variety trolling <laughs> like he just you know he's just trolling like everyone else on the internet like oh yeah you know just to get a rise out of people and so I wonder a ha, do you do you feel like he's evolved past that part of him to take what he does as seriously enough to make it the focus of his of his kind of his missives or whatever. And then B, does he acknowledge that? Like, oh man, yeah, like that probably didn't help my cause when I do this or when I do that. His inner circle is always on him about be clear, be focused. What are you trying to get out there? And he's just, he's a rambler. He's a, he's got that thought bubble above his head, just kind of keeps expanding when it should probably be a laser focus. I think the bubble bursting coalition is kind of a good example of that where John Carlos, you know, put his fist in the air at the Olympics is telling him Avery, Avery Bradley, Dwight Howard, a couple other guys who are kind of finding themselves in activism last summer. You know, you have to make specific demands. They're going to come at you. You have to ask for things of ownership, not just a boycott for the sake of a boycott. And Kyrie gets on that infamous, you know, quote unquote, the disruptor call. By Ree Irving. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was eating like a deli sandwich during the call, apparently. And but all he was kind of talking about was, you know, unity. And and people kept asking, like, what's the plan? You know, Mello asked, what's the plan? And I think that again, like separated people when he wanted to bring people together because he just wasn't clear, like, what are they demanding? What are they asking of ownership? And that stuff eventually happened in the bubble anyway. And I think there became a bit of a schism almost unnecessarily. I think he would agree that the, you know, kind of coalition of the unwilling failed because he wasn't clear what he wanted. So the guys who had a plan, maybe kind of the, some of the NBPA guys, the Garrett Temples of the world, the Chris Pauls of the world, they knew that this was just going to kind of be a media fiasco because it would leak to the Shamses of the world. And meanwhile, the whole thing fell apart and the bubble guys ended up kind of winning, even though it wasn't as much of a progressive, um, you know, quote unquote, revolutionary truth seeking liberation minded effort, even though I think everybody's liberation minded. There's just there's a there's a LeBron kind of mass audience, moderate way of doing it. And then there's, you know, like any movement has ever been. There was Malcolm and there was Martin. Right. And I think. Um, there's always going to be that in any movement. And Kyrie's just got to 
you know, find himself a little more and find his voice. The example from the bubble is a great one because at the time, well, let me ask you this. There was a meeting among the MBPA reps. Should we have a bubble? Yay or nay? I believe it went unanimously yay. And then after the wheels have been begun in motion, we have this bigger second Zoom meeting that had other players. And now Kyrie is the leader of the opposition. Why didn't Kyrie in the original Zoom meeting with the uh, executive board? As a player you know, rep. Yeah, as a player rep or as, a, as an executive in the MBPA, why didn't he voice his concerns at that moment and vote no? Everything was happening really fast. And Michelle Roberts, the union chief, was trying to get out there and, and find out what the concerns were for the team. Kyrie was out protesting in the streets. He was figuring out how to buy George Floyd's family a house. He was in Kobe's old gym working out with KD, who was kind of ready for the bubble. And they had this, you know, cool kids version of Nets World West. He wasn't that plugged into the NBA, NBPA calls. And so he voted yes, because everybody was voting yes. And then he was hearing second thoughts, you know, Guys felt comfortable coming to him who didn't feel comfortable going to Michelle Roberts. And so some of the young guys who wanted to protest but were worried about not getting paid, they came to him and he just kind of put this thing together. It was classic Kyrie, you know, head faking one way and then finding his voice a little too late. And that was the thing. It was all too late. It was all too rushed. The bubble was underway and the George Floyd stuff was evolving by the day. I think everyone was realizing that, okay, maybe it's a bad look to go to this bubble to recoup billions of dollars for Disney, ESPN, and the league when, you know, we could be out in the streets fighting. But I think that's what guys were asking is like, okay, so what's your plan? Are you actually going to get in the streets? Are you actually going to give back to the communities? Or can we do that with a louder voice from the bubble? I think he was kind of caught both ways being like yeah but and he just didn't have the eyes you know that's what some of the guys said like either come out you got clear but you need consensus and he just never got it obviously some of the things that he, he was dealing with are much bigger than basketball or even the business of basketball but why would you be on the executive board if you're just like not gonna I don't we know, know that kai can kind of dip out of locker rooms into his own kind of world, whether, you know, he sees one thing as his day job and one thing as his higher calling, he kind of faded from view of the union. I mean, they wouldn't kind of go there, but I got some, you know, winks and nods that like he's on that board, but he's not always on the calls, right? This is the thing though. Like if you want to be a leader, you have to lead, you have to be present, you have to be there, you have to show up. And so if you want the leadership position, but you don't want to actually have the responsibility of being the leader or not being relied upon. That's not being a leader. And so when I look at the, the Brooklyn Nets, I was fading the Nets all season because not because of how good Kyrie Irving is. It's because I don't know how reliable he is in terms of being there and having basketball be um, the first prior, not to, not to say that family and health and mental health and all that stuff isn't important, but I just knew that he had other things that he really cared about and basketball seemed like kind of secondary or a, a, a peripheral thing for him. And for me, it was like, Hey man, like he can be awesome, but I don't know how much like basketball you're going to get out of him because he's got all these other interests. And for KD coming off two Achilles tears or sorry, an Achilles tear in two years away, uh, and James Harden coming together, obviously that was, I mean, before the season, I didn't know that was going to happen. But today on, on Levitard's show, they were debating this. 
Like, was the Brooklyn Nets season a disappointment? Because if you're coming into this season saying they're going to win the title because Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and oh, there later on, James Harden, like those three players are incredibly good at basketball. But also in terms of reliability, like Kyrie Irving as a basketball player, great. But I don't know if I can depend on him. I always just thought they're not going to eat. They're either going to crumble from the pressure or crumble from the injuries. And it seemed like the injuries really tore this thing down in a way that I think uh, made me look smart. But in the end, I don't know if next year is going to be the same thing. Was this year a disappointment? I think Kyrie disappearing frustrated them. I think getting James in there was in small part uh, a safety net in case one of the guys got injured. You know, Kyrie was, when they pulled off the deal, Kyrie was in the middle of this sort of pause, he called it, right? And, uh, you know, people in his inner circle told me recently that it amounted to kind of a mental, spiritual, and emotional break. He's having a kid. Paternity leave is cool. The Jacob Blake, you know, cop doesn't get charged. The Capitol riot happens the next day. I think everyone was up in arms. Everyone was taking knees and everything again. But Kyrie just took off. He took off for two weeks. Um, I think management really wasn't happy about the video surfacing of the maskless party, which, you know, it's a family party. Everyone was getting tested, rapid testing and stuff. But they were like, oh, again, right? And so he had, a, he had to apologize. There was, there was a talking to there. But I think it's unpredictable whether he can continue to deliver and make, you know, any season not a disappointment if he's always going to do stuff like that. Now, look, again, like you said, Tom, it, it's cool to, you know, activism, mental health, family, this is all important. But Steve Nash has to get them to buckle down. Like, that's why he came in. That's why, they, that's why KD wanted him is because he could lean back and appreciate superstars being superstars, Kai being Kai. But he can also kind of start to wrangle these guys once they just spend more time together. I think that was kind of the secret motto that Steve had for the team this year was, quote, protect the group, right? Insulate them from the noise. Insulate them from ever having to talk to the media if they didn't want to, you know, Kyrie with his pawns thing. And, and I think just creating that um, insulation around those three guys is basically his whole job. I mean, he's got good assistance and a great franchise and their fancy facility to take care of the, the rest of the pieces. But those three guys are the team. We know that. And so it's not necessarily about reliability or, um, or disappearance if, if Steve can become a real kind of coach of the year type of guy. It's just personality juggling, basically. Matt, I want to jump back to something you brought up that Durant was working out last summer and he was ready to play in the bubble. Why was the ultimate decision to sit out of the bubble for him from playing? Doctors. I mean, Sean Marks, the GM, admitted to me that he was holding out hope that, that KD would be ready for this epic run in the bubble. And you know, his, his bodyguard, KD's bodyguard, the one who got in trouble with P.J. Tucker on the court, was telling me that KD was ready to go. He wanted to go. At the very least, show up to be a fan of his team and support them. And the Nets are very cautious. They're, they seem like this aggressive, you know, franchise of the future, but they're pretty conservative. And their doctor said, we don't want you at 90%. And obviously those decisions in these player empowerment days are, are up to the player. I think he just said, well, you know, I want to do it with the fans, with the, the black and white, with the scene and, and on his own terms. And to have this on the terms of a pandemic is sort of uncontrollable, but that's what he and 
Kyrie always wanted to do was take control. And that's what they decided as early as January, 2019. And so to not have it pay off for a long time is tough, but you know, this last year and a half has been tough for everybody. When they met in Charlotte, at the All-Star Game and in the hallway, that famous picture. That was your question, Tom? <laughs> yes, I was going to say, Charlotte is the epicenter of this thing, right? Or don't are you going to ruin my dreams and say this happened actually at, at, at Kyrie's house in Weston? He said January 2019. The Zapruder tape wasn't it. The two max slots wasn't it. These guys didn't just only see each other at the All-Star Game. Sure, maybe they're talking about no, it. No, they, they're not. No, everything happens in Charlotte. That's where everything happens. You can't tell me there's this all- Apparently everything happens in suburban Boston and empty mansions. Vegan burgers, vegan smoothies, kale salad, a bit of wine flowing, a bit of NBA 2K with these guys playing as themselves. And- you know, Kyrie was over it at that point. His he'd promised the long term extension, but his grandfather died. He'd had some some real connections with his Sioux roots. He'd he'd ran into Bill Russell at a random gym in Seattle where Jamal Crawford was hooking up some summer runs, and you know he talked about is Boston really the type of city he wants to represent with its racial history and all that. I think more than anything, Kyrie just wanted to come home and he wanted to do things on his own terms. He hadn't chosen the place he was going to live since Duke, basically, and he didn't really play there either. Shout out to the blue, my Blue Devils. But Kyrie and KD, you know, had decided all but then that this was the way to go. And I, I know for sure that KD had made up his mind to come to Brooklyn while he was still playing in the finals for the Warriors. Oh, so Ethan Strauss was right. <laughs> he, he had already made up his mind he was gone. Draymond Green was right. You got to do Ethan Strauss who come in here and – <clears throat> just give his whole opinion on stuff and make it seem like it's coming from me. And he just walk around here, don't talk to nobody, just walk in here and survey and then write something like that. And now y'all piling on me because I don't want to talk to y'all about that. I don't think we ever got a clear answer as to the why. Why did Durant want to leave Golden State? I know why he went wanted to go to Brooklyn, but is there is there a a kind of compartmentalized answer of, why Golden State wasn't it for him anymore. Well, he was definitely frustrated with Draymond, you know, being this alpha dog. And I think a big reason was that Kerr couldn't get Draymond to back down. Kerr and everybody loved Steph. I think Ethan, it seems, was also right about the media and the love and the fan love for Steph, just kind of irking KD. I don't know if it was the reason he left. There's this great scene that, that Steve and Kevin told me about where, where Steve takes out Kevin for a drink at a wood tavern in Oakland. And he's, you know, Steve's kind of preparing this speech to bring him, you know, KD had kind of been looking at his phone and the burner accounts and everything. And he was talking about how, you know, he says, you know what I respect about LeBron? I respect that after he got to Miami, he got sick of narrative, sick of the haters, all the talks. So you know what he did? And KD kind of leans back in the bar. He's like, what's that coach? And Kerr catches his breath. And he said, LeBron just said, fuck it. And then he was great again. Same with Michael, with Kobe, all the greats. First, they had to say, fuck it. And then they were on that next level. So you know what you have to do? And KD leans back and said, what's that coach? Go out and be you. You just got to say, fuck it, like LeBron did. And so Katie thought this was like the best advice he'd ever had. The dubs were rolling. <laughs> but, but, but Steve kind of, you know, is, is kind of confirming this side of the dialogue that Kevin had described. And I, I always want to get this right when it, people are in conversation. And then Kerr kind of, without me asking him, unprovoked, you know, says that Kevin just checked out that last season. 
as we've heard, but but that he he was just like despondent and staring at his phone. He couldn't get over these haters. And Steve said, you know, I tried, but I failed to stop him from worrying about all this pressure going back to his decision to come, that he was, you know, the softest move by a superstar ever. Ever and and Steve tells me, you know, I could see the strain on his face every day, especially that third year, just all day. But it was really he was staring into that phone all the time. So it, it's kind of the KD we think of trolling people is really him, which is cool that it's authentic. It just, you know, I don't think he loves Steve. The Draymond beef is is real, and I don't know if there's a reason reason other than that he was just kind of over it. And you know, he's the traveler. It's the next stop on his on his road. Matt, this is all gets back to the future I wrote for you. The the players are addicted to their phones and they're so embedded in their Instagram comments and just trying to fend off the haters. Like this is a very real thing. But some guys can deal with it. Like Zaza Pachulia was telling me, this didn't end up in the book, but that Steph would just like sit on the team bus sometimes and be staring at his app mentions and his comments. And he just laugh at like really bad stuff, like vile, racist comments, homophobic stuff. And stuff about his wife and he would just go into the feature that i guess you have if you're like a super blue checkbox influencer and just adding words of the, the the banned words that nobody can put in your comments and zaza said he had like 150 of them and he would just add them regularly on the bus but he would laugh at it because steph just like doesn't let that stuff get to him you know maybe he's built kind of a force field around himself or maybe some guys are just built differently to, to lock in and, and i'm not sure kd can do that all the time. I think we'll see, you know, he can certainly do it, you know, as we saw in the Bucks series, but, you know, I, I think they'll come back with all their, you know, super team um, energy. And, and again, Steve just needs to let them block out all the noise. Tom, <laughs> the way Matt described Steph right there, it reminded me of abstract shine doing Don Shampoo. <laughs> I know. He's just built differently. Just you know? built different, man. Like that's how he was back in the day. Like you had, People trying to murder him, literally not on social media. And you know what Don did? Don just laughed. He said, ah, I like a passionate fan base. Steph Curry just seems like he's just built different, you know, built different. Hey, Matt, so when you're describing this, it occurs to me that like maybe you're the person to answer this question since you've you spent so much time with Kyrie, as you call him Kai. I wonder, first of all, when did you start calling him Kai? Was it Kyrie first and then like you got in his DMs and stuff and you realized like, wait, we're tight now. I can go with Kai, right? Yeah, I think it's important to treat guys professionally as, you know, bigger than you and, and businessmen and entrepreneurs. Like you can't call Andre Iguodala Iggy until you are like getting on that real talk level. Once you break down the this like Sports Center post game Scott Van Pelt version of them to the real talk, that's when you can call them by their nickname. Gotcha. So do you think that Kyrie Irving or Kai will just like walk away one day and that'll be the last we see him on a basketball court? Like, do you think that's a, a more than 10% chance that Kyrie Irving just decides, you know, I'm, I'm done. He's said, he's told KD on his podcast that he could see himself just growing his fro out and going with a, some cape out into the mountains. Kind of like, remember the Tony Soprano scene where he's in the last season when he's out in the Vegas mountains on some vision quest high on Teodi? I get it! I think Kyrie thinks he could do that. And I do think that some people really thought he would retire when Kobe died, that he was just so broken down inside that he would not show up again. But no, no. I mean, he wants to win it all on his terms. I could see him retiring young and just giving up on his body and starting some foundation where that he really throws himself into. We'll see where the arc of this whole humanitarian activist thing goes. But I think he'll ride out as many titles as he can in Brooklyn. I don't see him ever leaving Brooklyn. He's just too close to home. 
He's building a huge mansion for his family. So like the whole titles thing seems so like traditional and like almost like old a theology of sports that I don't think Kyrie subscribes to like the idea of rings like matters above all else. Like, is it there, is it there kind of a juxtaposition of, of trying to be this freewheeling thinker and outside the box and activist and player empowerment, but also being like beholden to like Charles Barkley saying Kyrie can't win it without LeBron. I don't know if Charles said that I'm just making that up as something that Charles would say. Kyrie sets new goals for himself every year. He writes it on his whiteboard and this gold marker, you know, where the same ones where he says, you know, fear is not real, which is great, but he changes them all the time. And so his vision for life is kind of like a pinball machine. It changes every year. But his overarching goal in Brooklyn is definitely three championships. That's the number he's had. That's the number KD told me he had. But Kyrie also has this vision of being the greatest point guard of all time. And his trainer was telling him right when he got to Brooklyn or or was about to in that summer of 2019, uh, you're not even the best point guard in the league right now. So how are you going to do that? So I don't know if that contributed to him saying like, oh, I'm the two now when Harden came. Like, I I don't play point guard anymore. I'm, I'm off the ball for sure, for sure. So it's always shifting in the wind. And I think now that they have Harden, they can kind of lock in on some on court goals. I don't know what he wants to do for the rest of his life, man. I think he's still figuring it out. In the grand scheme of life, as he would put it, you know, he's pretty young. He's on the, you know, second half of his career on the court, but he's a young dude. He's still figuring it out. And I think he would admit that he is not as mature as he will become. I got two questions. They're two completely different questions. I guess as we talk about Kyrie, let me stick with Kyrie. What was the nature and the, the genesis of his relationship with Kobe Bryant? Why why was he why were they such kindred spirits. We got to know each other in the Olympics when Kai was on this kind of youngins team in Vegas with the workouts. And there's that viral video of him challenging him to one-on-one. And from there, Kobe had his text message relationships with guys. Kai had this dinner, this boozy dinner when he was on Cleveland, starting to get kind of fed up with, with being LeBron's younger brother and Phil Handy, um, you know, the kind of super assistant coach, and and Kai, they they drive out to Kobe's place. They have they have drinks and dinner in Orange County. And he asks him, you know, are you afraid to be different? And he says no. And he says, you know, do you care what the haters say? And he says no. And you know, I'm not sure the latter question was true at the time. And so from there, they just continued the texting relationship, calling relationship. Kyrie texted him um, when he was hurt in that Atlanta series in in 2015, and. Asked him for help, asked him for fatherhood advice. He's about to have a kid with his kind of, I think we can safely call it baby mama. And then they talked again during, you know, before the shot, leading up to game seven. Muhammad Ali died. They were talking about that. They were talking a lot. And he just told them, you know, keep your right, right elbow tucked toward the basket. And that's what he did. That's how he hit the shot. It was Kobe's advice. And it was the same advice he was thinking through his head after Kobe died, which was, you know, I can score 54 points if Kobe's in my spirit, in my head. And so I think he saw himself as kind of a successor even before Kobe passed in terms of the things he was doing with writing weird young adult fiction, but also with women's basketball, which has obviously become a a cause of Kyrie's. And Kyrie's just a good dude. And I think that's why I connected with, with Kobe, you know, at the memorial for Kobe, which was obviously like the Oscars of basketball. I mean, the most famous goats ever. And when everyone's kind of mingling at, at Staples in the tunnel after the, after the ceremony, Kyrie just 
goes out on the sidewalk, like right outside Staples and finds the girls of team Mamba, Gigi's old teammates and just chills with them for 20 minutes, just like helping them grieve. This was like their 10th funeral in a row. And so I think it's just that, that Mamba spirit rather than, you know, the black Mamba mentality. I don't, I think Kyrie rejects the black Mamba mentality because he's a, he can be a bit passive or just a kind of magician on the, on the court. But I think it's that girl dad vibe that he really connected with and is really finding in himself you know some some kobe vibes some some jedi stuff going on there we got the olympic teams announced recently kd bam brad beal devin booker jeremy grant draymond drew zach levine damian lillard kevin love chris middleton jason tatum how many of those can come to the nets like five i was just gonna <laughs> nets fans are already like yo how do we get a uh, dame to the nets well you're gonna have to give up some people to get dame nick claxton yeah, that's going to cut it. And Mike James. <laughs> Tyler Johnson. Chris Giotto. We always talk about how it's not necessarily the all-star game that creates these super teams, that it's really these go across the world and spend weeks in Tokyo or Rio or Beijing, whatever it is. So looking at this team and knowing what we know about the unrest in Dallas and in Portland, these changes that are happening – what do you think is the most likely partnership to be originated in Tokyo? If you remember the Rio Olympics where DeAndre and Jimmy Butler were smoking weed and drinking really nice wine all the time. And there's a Jackie Mack story about how Kai and KD and DeAndre sort of kind of wanted to team up then just because they're friends. Right. And I don't, I think, they probably could have predicted that DJ was not going to be an all-star by the time their next contracts were up. And then they hooked up their boy with a $10 million contract. Yes, they did. So I think it's more that they're friends, right? And so, and so Kevin Love is a friend of Kyrie. Like Kevin and Kai shared a mutual frustration with LeBron's domineering personality after a while. And I think it's been out there maybe that, that when Kevin was going through some of that mental health stuff, and really expressing it in the locker room before even in public, LeBron was still domineering. I'm not saying he called him soft, but there were times when Kyrie would be coming back from injury and LeBron would be pushing everybody for like an hour extra into playoff workouts. And sure, that's a championship mentality, but I think K-Love has that vibe with Kai. And I think Kai, in his you know occasional ability to be the GM of this team... It's also going to change the way we see coaches. I don't really see us having a head coach. You know what I mean? Like, I... KD could be a head coach. I could be a head coach. Jacques Vaughn could do it one day. It could it could be it can be it's a collaborative effort, I think, on our part. You know, we'll find a buyout and a deal for for K Levin. Maybe Brad Beal is not so mad at Washington. I think they, you know, the more I talked to Ted Leonsis, their owner, like, he's not gonna go there for anything less than, you know, um, the entire supermarket. So I don't know. I, I think K Love is is kind of the best they can do. They don't they don't have a lot of room, they don't have a lot of pieces. I think they got to go with what they got. You know, Blake was great too. I think he he's an old buddy who would do those, you know, superstar runs, Olympic style runs with, you know, he w- he was working out with them when in 2019. So was Melo. Melo's an interesting guy to see where he goes too. I think, you know, Lakers, Nets might be his two uh his two destinations to think of. Matt, you you touched on it earlier, but I want to get to the bottom of this. What is the deal with the love for DeAndre Jordan? They love that dude. 
He's a good dude, man. Love that dude. He's a good dude. I mean, wouldn't you want to invite him over to a dinner party or go to a bar with him or smoke a blunt <laughs> with him? I mean, he's he's awesome. <laughs> he's styling. He's got a cool wife. He's a great dad. He's the funniest dude in any locker room I've ever been in in any sport. He wears his heart on his sleeve, and he gets their back. Like, they don't have to answer questions to the media if they don't really want to, even though there's like requirements for that from the NBA, DJ will just jump up there and talk instead. That's what friends are for, right? Talking to the media. But he really is in decline. Like like Steve was able to lay down the law. A, a big reason that the ax came down on Kenny Atkinson when it did is because he wasn't giving minutes to DJ. And the veterans were like, what the hell is this? Why isn't he at least going in the third quarter to get his minutes? And Kenny didn't have an explanation for that other than he had a man crush on Jared Allen and probably still does. And he'll probably be playing for the Clippers somehow. But Steve came in because he was able to tell the big dogs when they're wrong, right? Like he, he can suck up to KD and Kyrie and James all he wants, but he's able to say, yo, DJ ain't it anymore. And it t- sucks that LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, had this life-threatening condition. It's great that Blake stepped up, but Blake stepped in for DJ very quickly. We thought DJ was going to get minutes maybe against Embiid in the conference finals, but I think he's pretty washed. And Steve Nash is able to say that even to the big dogs. So Kenny didn't say it. Kenny just said, ah, he never just said because he's not good anymore. Kenny wasn't very good at explaining himself to these guys. He didn't know how to suck up to these guys because he never had superstars like that. He would kind of, he said, you know, let's leave the Maserati in the glass case with KD rehabbing. I think Steve said something like, you know, when he got the Lamborghini, you got to let it drive. And so Kenny eventually, when it was almost too late, he was like, yo, should I fly private with Kyrie cross country for his second, third, fourth opinions on his shoulders from these fancy doctors who are even not even as fancy as the Nets fancy doctors, but like he was getting on that wavelength, the superstar wavelength, but the door was closing too fast. And honestly, those DeAndre minutes cost him and the hammer came down. Wow. And he just, you know, I think they called a mutual parting, but Kenny be the first one to tell you. He got fired. I was at his house the, the day he got fired. It, it was not a happy move. Whoa, whoa. Okay, so put me there. Like, what What happened? I make some promises to sources that I can't talk about certain things. Let's just say there was a lot of wine drank and that Kenny turned off the Nets game to watch a doubleheader that featured the Clippers. <laughs> Ooh, wow, wow. Already. I got a question that has never been answered. And maybe you know the answer. Maybe the answer will never be revealed. Kevin Durant switched his number from 35 to 7. Why? I never really investigated that. For all my 400-plus interviews for this book, (laughs) I find the the whole number thing very ridiculous. I thought it was really cool that that Spencer Dinwiddie kind of led the movement to change jersey numbers away from Kobe's number to kind of retire it across the league like Jackie Robinson in baseball. These guys with their numbers, I, I don't know. It, it's this spiritual heebie-jeebie connection that I just let them let them be. You know, Kyrie, instead of getting shoulder surgery for a while, was buying cell food from Honduran herbalists online. I'm sure Tom knows what all this stuff is about, but numbers confound me. Tom's the geek in this conversation. Numerology. You want my hot take? Uh-huh. My hot take is if LeBron just went with six from the beginning, he'd be considered the unanimous GOAT. Oh, the, him wearing 23 devalued his greatness because it was, you know, you, you're wearing someone else's number. You're wearing MJ's number, and therefore you've already established that he is the bar and he's looking up to him, that he is the GOAT. 
Whereas if he was starting out as six and was creating his own number, his own path, it feels like he can ascend beyond the number. But since he kind of paid homage to the to the 23, I think people in that subliminally in their minds just think LeBron will always be the mentee and 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 MJ will be the mentor. <laughs> How can you be greater than him when you you copied his he wore his number? I never thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense. I think he did a huge disservice to his standing in, in the in the all-time greats by just choosing MJ's number and not just going with his own. But isn't it weird? Like, we don't say that about the number 32. It's not like, oh, you're just trying to be like Magic. Or like the number 33, oh, you're just trying to be like Bird. It's like all these other numbers are just numbers, but 23 is hallowed in some sort of way. Yeah, because it's 23. It's never a cool, it's never been a cool number because it's it's a prime number. Yeah, it is. I think I did a study on this on basketball references, like watching the number 23, its popularity in the NBA before and after Michael Jordan. And it just just like went nuts because it's 23. Like we know it as MJ now, but 23 was just 23. I think Tom's whiteboard is a little crazier than Kyrie's. Like I'd like to see <laughs> your beautiful mind chalkboard matched up against Kyrie's. You should look at his IG the other day, not Tom's, Kyrie's. If you zoom in, there's some pretty intricate drawings, connections, bad puns, worse than Haberstroh show. There it is. So when we talk about player empowerment, we usually think of it as a positive thing, is that players are taking advantage of the leverage that may not in previous generations understood, that they can, that they are as powerful, if not more powerful, than the, than the franchise that they play for, and that they can shift the entire landscape of the NBA. And GMs, and owners have to like bow at their feet because they are that good. Do you think that players like Damian Lillard and Kyrie Irving, who have said in the past, like, I want to be a, uh, I want to be a forever Celtic, or I want to retire as a Celtic, or I want to retire as a Blazer. I'm not like those other guys. Do you think that we'll ever hear that again from a player? Because it seems like that always is used as a weapon against them. What's the point in getting caught in that, even if you're? A selfish asshole, right? I mean, I asked Dr. J about this, actually, because I wanted to get to the kind of history of player empowerment in my book. And he was saying, you know, going back to the decision, that there's like a responsibility that comes with superstardom. He said, quote, the building of the super teams, what happened in Miami, what exists now is definitely player driven and very self-serving. I'm not hating on it, but there's a difference. Service to yourself and service to the game. And I think if these guys are going to be, you know, the dames of the world, they're going to be personalities who can be on the backs of jerseys for kids in Chicago and Cali or wherever he ends up next and not just Portland, they have to serve the game, not themselves. And even if they are serving themselves, they should just shut up about that and serve the game in a broader kind of, you know, uh, man of the game kind of way. And I, I think Dame you know, takes his grumblings to Chris Haynes and otherwise holds his head high. And I think Brad Beal is, is the same way, even if he's, you know, behind the scenes really barking at management to get him the hell out of there. You know, he's not going to um, be an asshole out loud. Is my theory that if they just do it and then never address it, it'll just go away? Is that Does that theory hold true, do you think? Just what? If you're, let's say, Bradley Beal, and you know what, you make your trade demand, you get traded to Brooklyn, let's say, right? Now there are four superstars there and everyone's angry. If you're Brad Bill, you just never talk about it. Like, I ask you the question, you're like, ah. <laughs> you just kind of diffuse it. 
after a while, people just forget and give up. I mean, look, how many people mentioned that Harden played in Houston? It, it got to a point, Harden was playing so well in Brooklyn that people had to be reminded why he couldn't be MVP because he had, like, that beginning of his season in Houston where he wasn't playing well at all. But it's, that's my point. It's like, if you don't talk about it as a player, look at the look at these sheep, man. They can't, they can't, they can't stay focused on this topic forever. They just move on to something else. And I, like, that was my whole thing with Durant. Like, just play and stop talking. Yeah, he he's fueling the soap opera, right? Like, it, yeah. it, un, it undulates. Like, even though it's a 365 game, they're like, look at Harden. People forget he was in a strip club while he should be safe with COVID, while he should yeah. be warming up his team. It's but, like, all gone. He, he, because he's able to, like, you know, be this 75-year-old man on a hamstring passing all the time instead of shooting and dribbling, I think Tom reported, like, 92% of a possession – People forget that. And so why does KD, when, you know, he turns up the volume, when he could just have another 50-point game, he then goes and, you know, goes at somebody on Instagram comments. It's like, I think that's just who he is, but you're right. Everybody else can just deflect it. And I think Dame's going to do that if he, if he barks his way out of there. Does KD like it? This is my kind of assessment. I said there's two types of people. You got you to gotta figure out who you are. You're either Brandon Roy or you're Gilbert Arenas, right? Brandon Roy famously just like stone and nothing uh, doesn't really talk much, doesn't even get into it. And you just kind of people leave you alone at that at some point because you're boring. Right. Or you're Gilbert Arenas. Throw gasoline all over here. Wait, don't worry. I got the matches. He lives for it. Right. He invites it. He courts it. He, for fuck's sake, he brought guns into the locker room and asked the guy, pick one. Right. And. Sometimes I wonder, you know, when we say, oh, KD is at it again. He's he's yelling at Jackie McMullen. He's yelling at Jay Williams, whatever. And I'm like, maybe he likes it. Maybe he's Gilbert Arenas and he wants this. But his words sometimes, what he says, says, I don't want this. Why won't people just leave me alone? But his actions say, I do want this. Bring it on more and more and more. Does he really get off on like the haptic feedback of the at mentions? Because I'm not sure he's in there looking at his, I am sure he's not in there looking at his comments all day. He's in his DMs with everybody from Drake to some teenage girl who's looking for advice on how to hit free throws, which is dope. And he's out there reading about the game. He is a fan of the game. I, I kind of think he would be a decent analyst like maybe an in-studio guy at some point you would absolutely because he's a student of the game and it goes back to the whole like protect the group thing like again i don't think he gets off on fans talking shit he would be fine being in a fan-free covid bubble hooping that's who he is but he cares about his legacy he's like kind of old too and and he doesn't want anybody whether it's jay will or somebody else messing with his vision of his career I don't know. I'm not sure he needs to be the goat. I don't think he cares about that argument, but he's up there in like top five arguments on Twitter. Why is he stooping to this level still? I mean, I wish I could find the answer in this book to the burner account impulse, but I'm not sure there is really an answer. I mean, does Kawhi Leonard and Paul George fit your paradigm of? Yeah. Kawhi Leonard, man, we were talking about it the other day where it's like, Kawhi played like shit too in game seven against the Nuggets last year. But nobody brings it up. Why? Because he's never, there's nothing that sticks to him because he's boring. Drills it. And this building has come alive. The lead is cut to six. Kawhi Leonard going crazy. It's not because he's so great. 
that he's beyond reproach. He didn't call himself Kawhi P, right? <laughs> yeah, or a playoff K or whatever, special K. He doesn't point to his wrist when Damian Lillard misses free throws. He doesn't get on Instagram and say, ha, 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 we won the game. He doesn't say, oh, actually, the reason why I lost that last year was on my shoulder. He doesn't say any of that stuff. And then there's the other kind of superstar who's like the brand and just puts out, you know, the tweets that CAA tells yeah. you to put out. And I think PG is kind of like that, right? Like he totally disrupted a franchise and barked his way out of there in a kind of nice way. But everybody forgets that. I mean, maybe it'll come up now if they make the finals and they have to do all the narrative backstories. But PG is like to player empowerment, like Joe Biden is the presidential campaigns, right? He's like, he's safe. <laughs> He screws up sometimes, but he saved the team, right? And he didn't care if someone cooler or more exciting got, like, left in the dust. Like, maybe, like, the 12th best guy in the presidential playoffs, but he could be the last man standing. And, I mean, meanwhile, the Thunder did get a lot more for PG than the Rockets did for Harden, which was basically, like, Brody and Kuruks and five minutes of Vic Oladipo. But, like, PG kind of normalized demanding your way out, you know, like, without a fuss, just straight like boss moves, like Joe Biden with the sunglasses. I mean, who boss hogs their way out of town next without getting in trouble? Is it Dame? Is it Brad? Like, I don't know who can pull that off, the the low-key yet agreeable hustle to get your way exactly where you want to, and then everybody forgets about it. I think it's got to be Brad, right? Brad has this sort of capital with the fans, and the Wizards don't have that same sort of capital. No, I, I disagree. I think it's Dame. I think Dame's the one because Dame can say, look what I gave you guys. I left it all. He, he's the Kevin Garnett. I did everything I could, and it just isn't working here. And at some point, I have to worry about what my career is going to be. I don't want to be a bridesmaid. I want to be a bride one day. But there's a whole betrayal aspect. No. I don't think the betrayal is there anymore. I, I, I think just like we've said, player empowerment is like normalized. I think betrayal is normalized. Oh, I'm not saying it's justified. I'm saying the fans will see it as a betrayal. I don't think so. But why does he care about that? I think his whole like Portland love is, you know, he's an Oakland guy. He doesn't really care. I think fans in Portland love Dame so much. They're this one of the rare times. They're going to be angry at management. They're not going to be angry at Dame. They'll be like, see what you did. See this guy, this great guy who was in the community and did, and represented the organization the best. I mean, in terms of if you had to rank NBA players by leadership and face of a franchise, Dame's if he's not one, he's like right there at the top. There's nobody better. He's like not a not a single kind of controversy. There's never been a time where Portland fans were disappointed in Damian Lillard. Think about that. In well, how long has his career been? Like ten years, almost nine years. He's never disappointed them. So at some point when he says, guys, I got to do it. I got to go. I don't think those fans are going to be like, how dare you leave us? They're going to be like, yeah, man, we get it. You would think it'd be like the one more year kind of thing. Give it a shot. But Harden's also set the template for, well, it's not about the offseason. It's not about the trade deadline. It's just like whenever you're fed up and they can get you the hell where you want and get a decent deal or at least Rodeo's Kuruks, then you're out. Yeah, see, I think you guys are giving too much credit to the fans. Like, I, I saw what happened to LeBron and LeBron leaving and the way fans just felt entitled to LeBron in the same way that I think fans will feel entitled to Tom Damian Lillard, and he has to be loyal to that. The difference is LeBron, LeBron was the best player in the league, and the Cavs were the best team. They won in 66 games. At that level, when you're like, you're going to conference finals, you've been to the finals, you're winning like 75% of your games, 
The expectation is, buddy, we're almost there. Same thing with Durant. We went to, we're up 3-1 on the greatest team of all time. Like, we're almost there. Just stick it out a little bit. won game one of the 2012 finals against the Heat. It's more base than almost there at the top of the mountain. Like, Gordon Hayward was sitting around hurt one day, and he was telling me, like, again, unsolicited, that KD gave him the advice for his free agency 2017. Like, you don't owe anybody anything. And, like, 2019, you know, Iggy, who's teammates with, with KD and who's about to hold out until he gets where he wants to go down here in Miami – but but Iggy's telling, you know, it's kind of that fuck it mentality transforming into this, like, there's no guilt to be had. And he says, you know, he told KD, he told me, he told KD, at this point, fuck everybody. You know, that includes management, anybody from this team to that team, fans, whoever. Do whatever makes you happy, man. And don't feel like you're letting anybody down with any decision that you make. We are well past the decision. That doesn't sound like Andre at all. Uh, <laughs> fuck everybody. I'm telling you, that's Iggy. That's not Andre. That's not oh, Andre with his Zoom, you know, investing. That's Iggy. That's real talk, Iggy. That's what this book is all about, man. I got below the below the surface. I got to nickname. <laughs> got the nickname levels. No, but 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 you see my point though, Tom, is that Portland doesn't have that track record. Like they've had blips. Right, right. But They've fallen short again and again and again. It's like when when Garnett got no one was mad at Garnett in Minnesota because they realized, yeah, we pretty much fucked this one up. Toronto fans are pissed at CB though. They didn't go anywhere. That part of it is a different time. It's a different time. Like t- eleven years later, I think fans are more understanding. M- not saying they are understanding. I'm saying they're more understanding. Wait, so you can point to KG leaving Minnesota as them being like cool with that mm-hmm. and say that's not a different era, but CB in, in Toronto, is that what's happening? Yeah, because I mean, like they, they, they didn't get anything from him, right? Like the idea was like, if you're Toronto with, with Chris Bosh, there's a feeling of like, man, you didn't even like deliver good times for us. You were, we all right. We we're decent. We won 45 games or whatever, 47. We never won 50 games. We never had a chance, right? If you're Damian Lillard, I showed you how great I can be. And I and you also witnessed how I've been let down by this organization. I'm telling you, if he leaves, they're not going to be mad at him. Facts. Interesting. Okay. I hope so. I hope you're right. Oh, you hope you hope he leaves, huh? <laughs> wow. You're here first. Tom Haberstrow hopes Damian Lillard leaves the Blazers. Every time you think that you've got a a grasp on the NBA landscape. It's just like, oh, so now Damian Lillard is uh, is preparing to make a trade demand if things don't turn. And then there's like Luca, and then there's it just never stops. It never stops. So Matt, how can people find your book, and how do they find your your work, and and keep following all of the reporting that you're doing on not just the Nets, but all superstars in the league in this player career? You can get Can Knock the Hustle kind of anywhere you get books or audio books. You know, support your local independent bookseller. What's your favorite independent bookseller? Down here in Miami, there's one called Books and Books, and in Brooklyn, I love Books Are Magic. But you can find all these, you know, hipster bookstores at um, yeah, and your Amazon corporate overlords at hc.com slash the hustle. HC as in Harper Collins, my publisher. And on all the socials, I'm at Sul Duggery, which is a terrible pun that I'm stuck with for the rest of my life. Oh, I love it though. S U W L D U G E R Y. And there's a bunch of excerpts out there you can check out um, and decide if you want to spend a little coin on uh, on this history book that I really fell into um, by accident along with two of the pettiest dudes this league will ever see. 